Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Welcome to episode 96 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. Today, we want to share with you a conversation that took place in our Facebook group. We had a panel discussion on race and adoption, and the conversation was so rich that we thought it would make a perfect podcast episode for you to listen to. The panel is comprised of two adult adoptees and an adoptive mom, and I was the moderator. So this is a rather long conversation, so we are going to jump right in. So we are going to start by having our panelists introduce themselves. So, and I'm going to be the moderator. All right, we're going to start with Lahia. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi. Thank you, everyone, for having me. My name is Lahia Cushman. I um, am an Afro-Latina daughter of immigrants um, who has been married interracially for 21 years, and I'm also an adoptive mom. And I'm really excited to be here and share some of our stories with you. And you're also an adoption professional. Did you say that? I did not say that. I always forget to say that. So I'm also the director of adoptions um, here in Tampa, Florida. Great. Derek, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hello, I'm Derek Hamer. Um, and I'm adopted from Kenya. I was adopted in 2004. So I've been in America for a while. Um, I'm also, I've been to community college the last couple of years. And so this Next year in the fall, hopefully the virus holds up, I'll be going to uh, school in Pennsylvania where I'll be studying social work and communication. Dude, you're coming to my neck of the woods, Derek. We're going to have to hang out. I know. Out. We'll be close. We'll be you're going to get roped into all kinds of projects, Derek. I'm telling you. Yeah. Be ready. Be ready. All right. And you probably all know Melissa, but Melissa, will you introduce yourself? This is a different role than you often take. I know. So I'm Melissa and I co-host the Adoption Connection podcast with Lisa. And I was adopted as an infant from Korea in the 80s. And I'm also an adoptive mom. We have six kids by birth and adoption. And one of our kids was born in Korea. So I guess that's not a transracial adoption for me, but it's for my husband because I'm married to a white guy. And then our three oldest kids were born in Ethiopia. So we're a multiracial family in a lot of ways. And for those of you who don't know me, I co-host the Adoption Connection podcast with Melissa. I live in North Idaho and I have children adopted from Ethiopia. But today I am the moderator of this panel. So can we start with you? Lahia, am I saying your name close to right? Yes, you are. You are absolutely right. (laughs) Okay. Would you please start? How do you discuss race? Oh, let me back up and say one thing. All of the questions today came from our listeners and people who watch things on our Facebook group, The Adoption Connection. So our first question was, how do you discuss race without it becoming political? That's a really good question. Um, When I first saw that question, I was kind of surprised and I was like, well, um, I think the answer is in today's day and age, it's probably going to feel very political and that that's okay. I think that we need to make space for hard conversations um, so that um, the kids that we're serving and the kids that we parent um, experience um, what other children are experiencing. And so I feel like when we have real conversations about race, 
um, it may feel political, but really it's, it feels uncomfortable. And I think that um, I'm also married to a white guy. Uh, so I think we in our family, we have lots of uncomfortable conversations about race um, and more so now than ever um, because of what's happening in the country. So I, I just think, you know, if it feels political, it's probably because it feels uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable is okay right now. Because I think until we're uncomfortable, we're not gonna really change the narrative um, for the families and children that we're serving mm, and for our own you. families. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a great answer. All right, Melissa and Derek, this is for you as adoptees. How do you suggest parents balance supporting their child's health, healthy racial development and showing that they have their backs as anti-racist parents without putting their kids in a position of feeling tokenized or having their journey feel too public? Uh, I say this about a lot of things in adoption, and I think race is an, another area, and that is to follow your child's lead, uh, especially as they get old enough to start having these conversations with you and let them tell you how much of their story that they want to be made public. I think some of our kids will be okay with it, and they'll be okay kind of being the face of what it means to be a multicultural or transracial adoption family, and some will not. And I don't think that our kids' stories have to be necessarily at the forefront in order for us as parents to be considered anti-racist and to be pushing the conversation and having uncomfortable conversations. Uh, even our experience as parents raising kids of color is an important you know, our own personal experience brings something to the conversation. And so I think don't devalue what you have to bring if you're a white parent of a, you know, parenting kids of color, that your experience is completely valid in this conversation. And we don't have to necessarily bring our kids to the forefront unless we have their permission. It's mm, important. Derek, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Uh, Melissa, you're talking about just following your child's lead and I think that is so important I think that one of the things that I've learned in my family is that we have to be able to create a space in our house where we really can talk about anything where I can bring up a conversation and I'm not going to be judged for it I'm not going to be uh, chastised um, and sometimes it comes from someone being called out and saying hey like that is an okay thing to say something that just recently happened that it's honestly a minor thing, but even but it kind of got me thinking. If we were getting ready to watch a movie with one of our uh, with our family, and one of our family members, one of our white family members, said something like, "You should watch this movie because it's important as a black person to learn the history." And uh, my brother actually didn't like that. Right? He was upset by that. And I was like, okay, but as, as I thought about it, I was like, "Well, they actually didn't mean. I don't think they realized what they meant to say." But as I thought about it, I was like. But I, I think as a white person, you have to be careful not to be the person saying, oh, as a black person, you need to do this or you have to do this, right? I think that's one of the situations where if I want to watch a movie about a historical black guy, that's coming from me, not from my parents saying, oh, come down and watch this. You need to watch this. You need to learn this. When in reality, it's like I could watch every movie in the world about a black person. That's not going to change my experience and everything that's going to happen to me. And so it's important as a parent to be careful with what you're saying um, and creating I think you can create a space for kids to say what they want but don't do it in a way 
where I don't know, I think for my brother, I think it just kind of felt like he was being told what to do. Uh, and so you just have to be very careful about that. Lahia, will you comment on that too? Um, I think for us, um, I agree with Derek. Uh, you have to make space for those conversations, um, for them to come up naturally, not just, hey. Um, I think um, because I'm a social worker, I also um, want to teach him things, right? So like when the movie Harriet Tubman came out, we took him to the movies to go see it. It wasn't like, he loves to watch action hero movies. And I was like, oh, we're going to go see a super, a Shiro. So we're going to sit down and learn about Harriet Tubman. And I think for our family, like making moments for that, but not um, always with his permission, always with his understanding of how he identifies. So I've spent a lot of time trying to get my son to identify as, you know, all of these things. And sometimes you lean more one way than the other, even if the world doesn't for you. And so we have to make space for him to, he's 14 now, We've, he's been with us since he was born, um, but making space for him to figure out who he is, not who the world tells him he is, is um, definitely um, a challenge, especially now, especially today. So, but we make space for that, for sure. How do you balance the reality that racism exists without scaring your children or causing them unnecessary anxiety? I'm really glad someone asked this because I've been thinking about it. I really was very impressed by this question. So here's, I'm going to give you my honest truth from my own life experience as a woman of color. Um, there really isn't a way to do that without a, you know, heightening their awareness, heightening their realities, right? So I'm raising a brown child in the South, brown boy at that in the South, who is looking less cute and more manly every day. And, you know, some of our realities about teaching him about driving, um, you know, when a police officer pulls you over, the things you need to say so that you can get back home to us when we're not um, doing those things, I think, the, our own traumas, we have to be careful as adults, right? That our own traumas, we're not passing them down to our children, but there are things that are just survival-based that I have to teach him um, that does create anxiety, that does create some fears. And then we address it, right? And we create a system of support around that. But I don't think that um, being black or brown in America today um, is, is that there's space for you not to feel some anxiety. I mean, as a mother, I feel anxiety. With my son entering the phase of driving, um, I feel anxiety. Um, and maybe one day we won't feel that way, but I think when you make space for hard conversations and everybody gets uncomfortable, you know, that's where change is gonna come. And I think that's where we are as a family. And I think that's where we are as a nation right now. So that's why I'm glad about conversations like these because mm -hmm. they're necessary. Melissa, I'm going to hop over to you. Well, I think a little bit of what he has said is right. We want kind of a healthy dose of fear and um, maybe, maybe not anxiety. I don't want my kids to be not able to live their life to the fullest. But, you know, it's the same thing. Like when we go hiking, we look for snakes, you know, like, and it's not to freak people out, but it's because it's a thing. And we need to know what to do if we come across a situation, you know, like if we're camping, we need to know what happens if a bear comes into our campsite. Um, so if we are raising children of color, we need to teach them 
how the world is going to see them and how to handle that. And I think we need to give, empower them for those situations and then help them assume that as long as they do what we're talking about, that that's the most that they can do. We talk a lot about this in parenting, that we only have so much control. And so I think helping our kids know what they have control over and what they don't and, and then taking it from there can be really helpful. I also think we have to talk to our kids about, you know, just like when, and whenever something happens in life, we can choose kind of the impact it has, you know, we can take lemons and make lemonade or we can complain about them. Right. Um, and so not to minimize what's going on from a racial perspective, but we as people of color, and I've had, you know, multiple situations where the people I interacted with were clearly a little bit ignorant about, you know, my race or my culture or my language. Um, I can choose to internalize that and let it ultimately affect my identity, or I can kind of recognize where that comes from, maybe even with a bit of compassion that maybe they've never been taught, they don't know, with um, recognizing that it's not okay without letting it destroy my life or my day. Good. Derek, I know your mom so well, so I know that there has been no shortage of conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we do. We have plenty of conversations in our family, uh, just about race. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that I found from my parents, it's like, just like I talked earlier about creating that space, is you try to find the appropriate time and how to deliver it. Um, I think when we were younger, we could talk about race in a completely different way than we talked about we talk about now. Um, and I think that like, I don't know. I think the biggest thing that I've learned from my parents and just watching the way they do it. And I think as an adoptive parent, you there's times when you have to take the lead in the conversations where it's actually more about, okay, what am I doing to be able to help my child? It isn't always looking to your child like, oh my gosh, Derek, what do you feel about what's happening in the world? What do you think of, what's your thought about it? But it sometimes requires you actually taking the lead and saying, Derek, you know, I've been watching what's happening and it's actually made me think a lot about, oh, the way I parented or some of the things I've said, and I'm actually starting to change what I'm doing, right? And talk, I think the whole conversation right now around is how do you be anti-racist? And I think part of being anti-racist is finding a way to have a conversation, but it's a conversation of, hey, I'm breaking down my walls. Um, and I, again, I think as everyone assumes you have adoptive children, you have children of color. Oh, there's no way they can be racist. But I think that it, I mean, we're finding out it's true. I think you can still be racist regardless of what kind of children you have. And so I just, I think that the conversation needs to be that, hey, I'm actually, there's things I'm doing, Derek, to be able to help. Is there anything else I can do? And it's like, I, I appreciate when my parents say that to me and they say, what else can I be doing? Right? And that, that makes me think, okay, wait, so first of all, you're paying attention to what's happening and you want to help me out at the same time. Like, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, that's been the biggest thing for me with my parents and my family, really, because I think it's, it's not just my parents. It's, I've seen everyone in my family just kind of realize, oh, man, like, I, I wasn't racist, but I also wasn't doing anything to be anti-racist. And so, therefore, I could be, I could be seen as racist. Um, and so it's, it's had become something that our whole family's had to look at and say, like, wow, like, I need to change the way 
I'm doing things. Uh, and it, it obviously was different. I said earlier, it was different when we were younger, but now that we're all the same, like uh, we're all older, we aren't going to be seen as, and I can explain it a little later. I think there's a question that'll be a little later, but, about, but I think I'll leave it with this. I think that as black children in our family, I think for the longest time we were, uh, were seen as whatever our parents are or whatever our family is. So we, we've actually been given a little bit of that privilege, but it kind of changes once we're older. And I can explain more later, but with a different question. That's good. Thank you. All right. This question has multi parts to it. So I'm going to try to ask it in parts. We'll see how this goes. So Lahia, what is, how do you define black culture? And I'll give you the next part of the question. Cause I don't know how you want to put this together. When do we use terms black, brown, people of color? Is this a personal preference or is there a right and wrong way to use them? My daughter prefers the term black and hates the use of the term people of color. So, so basically give us, tell us how we use proper language and tell us a little bit about what black culture is. So I'll start with language first. Um, I grew up in New York city and, um, Black people were referred to as African-American. And then I moved to Tennessee where Black people wanted to be referred as Black. And that was the first time in like 25 years of my whole life where I had to figure out, this doesn't feel right, but this is what you're asking me to say. And so for me, I will tell you that um, it's really what people want to be called in a lot of ways, right? Um, I think you'll see um, more and more people say, no, I'm, 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 I'm Black. Like, You'll hear more and more of that um, nowadays. I think um, when we're talking about people of color, I usually hear that from social workers and I usually hear it about research and data. So it's when we're grouping a group of people together. That's usually when I hear people of color. Um, I use them all interchangeably when I'm speaking, when I'm doing public speaking engagements. It's just whatever comes out is what I say. Um, my son will tell you that he is he's um, interracial, so he is black and he is white. Um, and I think that it's really what the person wants to say they feel most comfortable with. I think the deeper in the South you go, the, in my experience, the more I hear people saying, I'm black. I'm not African-American, I'm black. I'm a black American. And so um, I lean more on that as well. When it comes to um, the first part of the question, which was, what is black culture? Um, like I, when I read the question, I, I know it in my mind, but I was, I had to do a little bit of digging to figure out like, how do I explain this in a way that resonates? Right. Um, but really it's, it's the, it's the stories of black people, um, throughout the history of the United States that have not been shared. Um, so I'll use Harriet Tubman as an example. I learned about her in school a lot about the, um, you know, underground railroad, I never fully understood the number of people that she set free. I never fully understood the history of her beyond that. So for example, she was one of the first generals in the Civil War. No one told us that. First female black general. The first time I heard that was what, two years ago when her movie came out. And so it's, it's that part of history, right? That is not being told um, appropriately so that I growing up as a child of color, black girl in you know Manhattan that I could see myself in a Harriet right not just as a slave but as the liberator of slaves so I think that um, when we talk about black culture we're not just talking about 
And I think we have to be careful. It's not just always about civil rights, but it's about art. It's about music. It's about history. It's about all of it. Are we as Americans ensuring that Black history is told in the right way, that Black artists are being shown in the right way, that um, Black actors are being, are giving, are given roles, not just of slaves, right? Not just of activists or criminals, but, you know, mom, dad, wife, you know, president. Um, I think that's what, when you think of Black culture, that's what we're talking about. It's about being part of the story. Um, and I think Black people for far too long have had to create their own culture because they weren't really allowed and still in a lot of ways aren't allowed in American culture. And I think that's what Black culture means. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Derek would say Derek, about it though. You can, would you feel free to address that whole question? I also think people might like to hear your thoughts on the African, African-American, mm-hmm. yeah. Black, person of color. Yeah. You want to share your thoughts? Yeah. So you're I'll, in the opposite I mean, side of the country, like literally am, from Yeah, Lydia. we're like, we're like, <laughs> so I'll, this is what I'll, I'll add a little bit to the culture because I mean, you nailed it. And so I think that it is just like the way you view the black people culture is like, for instance, like when you listen to rap music, it isn't, oh my goodness, how dare he say the N word, how dare he swear. It's more of like, wow, there's a reason he's using this, right? He's trying to get a certain message across. Uh, when a black woman wears her hair super short, it isn't like, why is her hair short? It's like, wow, that's, that's beautiful, right? So it's like the way they're viewed that is, that normally in a white culture, just because it wouldn't happen in a white culture, doesn't mean it isn't beauty and it isn't uh, cool in the, the black culture. Um, and it's kind of like, I guess the black culture is the way we identify ourselves. And it's a way for us to be able to say like, yeah, we're, we're like united. Um, I don't know, like for me, something that's always kind of funny is like, when we were younger, we'd, uh, we'd be walking down the road and uh, like African-American men or black men would be walking by and they'd do the little head nod. And we were, we were like kind of confused yep. about that. And, as I got older, I was like, oh my goodness, look at the way we identify ourselves. Like, hey, how you doing, bro? Good to see you. I see you. Uh, so yeah, you, I mean, you nailed it, but just a little bit of that. And then for uh, the Black versus African-American, that's been something that's like for a long time been kind of confusing to me because I think the like, and for me specifically, because I've always assumed, okay, I'm Black and I happen to be in America. So I'm just, I'm a black person that's in America. So I wouldn't necessarily always, I've never always seen myself as African-American, but then as I grew older, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, actually, technically you are African-American. So that's always changing. Right. And so yeah. that was always been confusing me. But I think the one thing that I always understood is um, when I, growing up, one thing people always said to me, and it always came from white people, they would say, well, Jake, you're, you're not black enough. Like, and I would always get confused by that. Like, what do you mean? I'm not black enough. And what it was is, what they were telling me is actually Derek the way we perceive black culture and what we've been seeing and it's actually like you hit on it the wrong ways the wrong things the black the media or white people have said about black people you don't live up to that Derek so we don't see you as black right so wow you don't sag you uh you don't you like you don't talk a certain way right and so I always was like really confusing and so one day when someone when I got older uh, a black person that we uh, became really good friends with looked at me and said like what do they mean you're not black enough I mean you're from Africa you're 100% black you couldn't be any more black because like I don't mean what you mean that you're not black enough right. and so uh when he said that I was like oh he's right like I am like there's nothing uh and I realized that it, it made me kind of realize I need to stop trying to get up trying to stop being upset by the way I'm being perceived because it isn't correct it isn't okay that's just not right and so 
uh, I don't know. So for me, I tend to see myself as like, yeah, I'm black, right? And when people say, well, you're African American or this, I got, to me, I've always been like, okay, I don't, I don't understand. But I think the thing that makes it more confusing for me is that I am black and then I also live in a white family. And so the world is always going to be into those bad stereotypes we were just talking about. What the world is always going to see of me, it's going to see me outside of my family. It's going to see me within those stereotypes. Like when I leave my home, I leave my family. It isn't, oh, look how cute he is. He's with his white parents. It's, oh, no, he's a criminal. He's dangerous. He's going to steal something. Uh, and so that has always made me think just like, like I, I don't know. Like it's always, it's always been confusing for me. And I, I got to be honest, it's something that I still am confused by and I'm really confused by. Even going back to Kenya last summer where I was like super excited to be around people who look like me, people who are the same as me, and being told like, oh, like you're – pretty white like you're white african they even had a word that described me as white african and even that just kind of confused more confused me even more because then i was like well so what am i like where do i fit in i did extensive like therapy just to be able to talk about like where do i fit in what like what's happening like i see myself as this uh but in america i'm seen as this and then even in africa i'm seen as this so like where like where do i fit in like, what, what am i um and something that i'll be honest i'm still walking through and i'm still trying to just figure out and I think it's it's one of those things it's going to be different you said it, it's going to be different for each person each region in the country the way you described so for me I see myself as Kenyan and I'm proud to be Kenyan and then I'm also just also proud to be part of just the black culture in America um, so that's really the way I see myself. Ooh, that is actually a very complex answer Derek. I, yeah. I was I was actually glad <laughs> yeah. listening to you it's process so good, that though. I was like wow yeah. I mean this is this is what my well your Ethiopian kids my Ethiopian kids Melissa trying to find their way as Ethiopians adopted into white families who are perceived as African-American black people of color whatever you know this is it's not a simple thing I am glad to express that Yeah. yeah Our, our kids express similar things. I've had similar experiences. Um, our kids were adopted as older kids too, which I think further complicates it. They have really strong accents. They were adopted at 11, 13, and 14. And two of our kids went to Job Corps in a community that had a lot of black kids with a lot of more stereotypical American black culture. And they struggled to fit in there because they didn't speak the vernacular of the black culture. They were just trying yeah. to get a hold of English, um, but they didn't quite, they, they, at that point they'd been home for three or four years and they weren't quite accepted by the African small group of Africans that were there either because they didn't remember all the language They had a little bit of language, but you know, and, and so they weren't sure, are we African or are we black or, or you know, are we African-American? Where do we fit into all of this? And so that was really the first time where they really had to face that kind of head on. Yeah. Okay, true confession. I was not going to say this, but I will. As a white mom adopting kids from Ethiopia, I remember when they came home and as they got a little older thinking, well, you know, they're Ethiopian. That's different. Like yeah. I wasn't thinking as much about how they really fit in to black culture, African-American culture in the U S and yeah. it's, it's still something I'm really figuring out. And I think it's going to be a long journey, you know? So, yeah. all right. 
This can be for all of you. How does your faith intersect with your racial identity? So we could talk about the church and race and anything you like. Lahia, are you going to start? Okay. I can start. Yeah, I can start. So um, I was born Southern Baptist in Manhattan, <laughs> New York City. So for us, um, and it was a Spanish speaking church because my parents are immigrants from the Dominican Republic. So for us, um, race and culture and diversity was all part of like God's kingdom, right? Um, so when I think of heaven, I think of, you know, all the things that um, are promised in scripture, but I also think of all the different cultures and races and all of those pieces that will be there in harmony, because I don't know that we've actually ever seen it on this earth in full harmony, if you will, right? Um, so for me, I always take it from that perspective. So if pe when people ask me questions like, you know, my son is much lighter skinned than I am. Um, and when they ask him, you know, so, um, you know, would you have preferred to be in a different kind of family? He will say, no, I mean, like, I, this is my family and this is the family God gave me. And so for us, I think we're always navigating, um, you know, what would Jesus do? I don't know what everyone else's faith is, but for us is, you know, we follow Christ. And so, you know, we, we saw Jesus like embrace people of different cultures, different, um, you know, I always, I always think of him as breaking the mold, right? All these boxes that we want to check, right? Because even in these conversations we're having right now, we realize like race is complex. Like I'm an Afro-Latina, so like I'm black and Hispanic all at the same time. And I navigate two worlds. So I understand what Derek is saying, like I don't really fit into in either space, right? I have to kind of create my own space that I accept fully. And I think that that's one of the things that Jesus did. Like he came, he, you know, spoke to the woman at the well that nobody else was speaking to. He, you know, brought disciples over that nobody else was really embracing. And, you know, there were some strong characters there. Um, and I think that that's how we should be too, welcoming of all people. Scripture is also clear on, you know, welcoming people from other lands as a brother. And I think that um, when we fail to do that, then we're failing to do what is what we were called to do, which is love. No, I, I actually am so tempted to ask you another question, but if we get time, we'll come back to it. Derek, do you want to talk about your faith and race and yeah, identity? Uh, yeah, so I think for me, I've, I think for the growing up for the longest time in uh, church, race wasn't something we really ever talked about because I think it's always just assumption of like, well, you know, we're all Jesus followers. Race doesn't matter. Just as long as we follow Jesus and do what he says, everything will be okay. But I think that now we're starting to see the wait, actually race should be something that's talked about in the church because there's a specific reason we talk about God doing things for a purpose, right? And having a purpose for our life. And so if that's the case, then there's a reason he made us all different colors. Right? He, there's, and so there's a purpose behind that. And it's something that I'm really, uh, I mean, I started picking up on years ago, but I'm still trying, trying to kind of like hone that in. Like, oh gosh, we are all beautiful for a reason. Like the, uh, God didn't just wake up one day and say, well, half of you here are going to be black and half of you are going to be white just because I wanted to no, He sees the beauty in it. Um, something that I just, someone showed me the other day and I was just super amazed by it. And, and they said that there's not a single person in the Bible who's white that just kind of was like, it made me say, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, that can't be true. <laughs> and so it made me think that like, wow, like even 
within that. Like there's, I mean, God could have, Jesus's story could have been anywhere, but he chose to be uh, really people of color. And so that made me think even more. And so when the church doesn't talk about race and doesn't, uh, when I feel like the church isn't doing anything to stand up for racism, I, I think to myself, like, that's just so wrong. Because if you read the Bible, Jesus did exactly that, right? The story of the Good Samaritan. It's Jesus, it's like, yeah, lots of different interpretations of it. But the way I've looked at it is the way the, the Good Samaritan acts towards the man is that um, he actually is talking to someone who really would have been considered of a different race. Right. And so when I look at that, I was like, that's the interaction that Jesus is calling us to be, to get out and be uncomfortable and stepping into the other, uh, talking to people who look different than us, people who might talk different than us. Uh, I don't know, we can go, I, I like this question, I can go on and on, but I'll just leave it at that. I do <laughs> no, I like it. This yeah. is great. This is so good. Too. Derek, I've never heard anybody yeah. say that before. And when you said it about there are no white people in the Bible, I was like, wait a minute, you're right. <laughs> Wow. I mean, for a long time, I've said, you know, Jesus was not white. I mean, obviously, but I had never thought about the whole, nobody was, nobody was. No, you know, I think it's really awesome though, that a lot of churches, my church in particular, I'll talk about mine, has been doing a really good job about talking about race now. I have not seen a lot of churches do that in the past. It was just kind of like what Derek was saying, like, oh, we're good. You know, we, we get it, um, but we really don't. <laughs> and so, um, and if you want to see it, it's, it's uh, the best picture is families bringing adopted children that don't look like them into these churches. Um, and then that's when you kind of start to see like, wait, we've got issues here. Like, let's, let's get uncomfortable and have this necessary conversation. Mm, yeah. So it is. It's sad what it took to get us here, but I'm glad we are having conversations. I mean, I live in North Idaho. We're not particularly diverse. I will say I live in one of the most diverse towns because it's a college town, but still, yeah. still, it's okay, yeah. Yeah, very white here. Yeah. So, Melissa, how about you, yeah. faith and racial identity? Yeah, so I think, you know, if you're a family of faith, it gives you an underlying foundation to approach all of these things. You know, I think about other questions that we've talked about so far how do we talk to our kids about race without making them anxious, right? At the end of the day, we have the conversations about what could happen. Like I said, like we have to be prepared, but then we also talk about, you know, God's in control and there's nothing that can happen to us. That's so scary or so big that he'll leave us alone or that he won't be able to redeem a situation. And I also, I think my faith has anchored me in those situations where I'm tempted to be swept up into the, where do I belong? You know, I'm, I was raised in a fairly diverse area, but in a very white family and Asian uh, racism is different than racism with blacks. Um, and, you know, how does that interact? When we went back to Korea to adopt our youngest son, there was a lot of that weird disconnect where everyone expected me to be the translator for our party and I couldn't, and I don't speak the language. And um, I mean, I, I think throughout my life, I've been an outside the box person. I got married really young. You know, most of my friends who are my age, their kids are like grade school and our youngest is 13. 
um, you know, we have a big family, which puts us, you know, in this other place. And we believe in Jesus, but we also have a kegerator in our living room, right? Like, so we have all these things that don't always fit the nice, neat boxes that people want to put us in. Uh, we're, our, we're, we homeschool in kind of an unconventional way. And, and so if I think about it too much, right, I can get really lonely and I can think I don't have, you know, a best friend that checks all the boxes, right? I don't have a best friend that's a mom in the stage of life that I'm in, that's an adoptive mom, that is a woman business owner, that also loves Jesus. Like I don't, I have friends for all of those buckets. Um, and so I think in our racial identity, race is important. We don't wanna be colorblind. We wanna talk about culture, but we have to anchor ourselves in something or else we will float around forever wondering where do I fit in? Where, you know, where are my, where are my friends? Why can't I belong to that community and that community? Um, and, and I think filling our lives with diversity because of our faith and knowing that we serve a God who created all of us to be so different. Um, we've incorporated as much diversity into our family almost by accident, but I see it now and I see God's hand in it um, in terms of neurodiversity. You know, some of our kids have special needs and color, you know, we're, we have people from all the continents, you know, in our family and people have intermarried in different ways and we're a second generational adoptive family. And so that's really even changed how we define family. A lot of families define family by blood and really like none of our families related by blood. There's very few, like if you're related by blood to our family, you're in the minority across two or three generations. And so it's changed really the, I think our, our sense of belonging and our definition of it. And so I think, it can be really beautiful to be able to lean on our faith to anchor us when a lot of the world seems to be really rocky. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. yeah. That was so good. So as long as we're talking about faith, what do you think the church is doing well right now? Or what do you think the church should be doing? I think um, what churches are doing well now is um, having conversations about race and um, not seeing it as a political issue necessarily. I think the churches often, I'm, I'm you know, the granddaughter of a Pentecostal minister. So um, church is in our blood. Um, so I'm, I'm very used to church life, but I think that um, we have been silent on things that matter for a long time. Um, and so, I think, you know, when we take a stand against abortion, for example, but we don't take a stand on black lives, that concerns me. Um, so for me, I think that what we're doing well is having really hard conversations right now. Like I can tell you what my church did. We had a panel um, that we, we went live on Facebook live and had some of our, you know, um, the black families in our church to really talk about their actual real life experiences um, and then come together and pray. And I think that, you know, what churches are doing now requires action. And so we spend a lot of time talking and praying and those things are great. But I think that, um, you know, are we going to become multi-generational, multi-ethnic churches um, where we can, right? I, I mean, I was in a small farming town in North Carolina for, for 14 years. So there wasn't a lot of diversity there. But I think that, um, churches are expanding and becoming broader, just kind of like um, what Melissa shared about, you know, in her family, not everyone is of blood. And I think that, 
you know, churches need to kind of embrace that idea. We are family. We're really good at that. But can my son date your daughter? You know, um, those are the things that, that honestly, that's one of the reasons why I relocated to Tampa from my small farming town in North Carolina that I adored. But the reality is things were changing and, and our church life needed to change too. And so I think that for us, it was really important for us to be in a more than whether there were more adopted kids in the church. I needed him to see himself in other kids in the church. And so that was really important. So I think, you know, we just need to keep having these necessary conversations. And I think people of color, what we need to do differently in churches is be honest. I think for a long time, we just sit back and we're quiet and we're like, no, we don't want to cause a scene. Like I don't need to be sounding like I'm, you know, crying or upset about it. Um, but we need to be bold. And I think, you know, that's why I appreciate conversations like these, right? Because we need to share our truth, live in it. And then together, all of us come to a solution. And the solution is really love. I think, um, you know, I love my husband. We've been married for 21 years, but we don't come from the same worlds, right? Um, and our families don't either. And so it's taken time to develop those relationships. And I think families who have adopted can change the world. And we have done it one child at a time, but now, you know, we need to follow that up with a lot of action in our churches too, and hold our church members accountable. In love. <laughs> in love. <laughs> Derek, what do you see the church doing well right now or not well? Yeah. Uh, so I think that um, I heard someone say that you can't pray racism away. Um, and I thought that was impactful thing to say because I think for the longest time I think in the church world is always and I think the church oftentimes can really in any issue can get caught up with oh let's just pray about it and I think prayer is great I think prayer can work all sorts of great miracles but like after you've prayed after you've done your praying I think there's a certain action that needs to be done um, I think it's been super cool seeing my church um, where for the longest time, yeah, we really weren't having those tough conversations about race. It felt like, yeah, every once in a while, you know, you'd have the one message where, okay, everyone right here. But then the next Sunday, you go back to talking about, oh, this is what you need for spiritual healing, which again, those are great things to talk about. But I think there's got to be some kind of component where, uh, I don't know whether it's maybe you're having groups meet or um, just different things where you're talking about race, where you're being uncomfortable. Um, and I think it's been super cool to see my church where I've seen um, elders and leaders of our church go to protest. Um, they, uh, when the Mott Arbery uh, thing came out, we had this long petition a church leader signed, um, which again, those are the action steps, right? I think they've done the prayer, okay, what can we do? And then the action steps followed, which I think was super cool to see. And even now, um, I think there's been this different conversation happening within our church where it's like, oh, I like we, we're, we need to have this conversation about racism. We need to talk about it. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's something that's super important. And it isn't, not even from a perspective of, okay, let's have, bring in a guest speaker, a black person to do the talking. No, it's your pastor, whoever your pastor is, needs to be the one having this conversation. And it, it might, the first talk might be messy. It might be like, yeah, listen, for the longest time, I didn't talk about anything, but here's what I'm doing now. I'm getting out of it and I'm, starting to do to do this this is what i need to do and i think by doing that by your church leader whoever it is talking about their own experience i think that's how you bring your church along with them um, which i think is something my church is starting to do where leaders are starting to speak up and uh and i think you're right Lucia, where you said that 
um, where at the end of the day, as a black person, I can sit in my church and complain about everything that's happening and just be like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. But if I'm not talking to the right people about it, if I'm not bringing up the issue, like, yeah, listen, like this is an issue. I don't think it's, I think you're doing your church a disservice. And I think I'm doing my church a disservice because either they're just blind to it, or maybe they're just really, they might say like, oh, we didn't even realize that was going on. And so by me sitting back, I'm doing a disservice to them. And that isn't to say that my job, or I owe my church something I need to tell them. Like, I think your church, wake up church, there's racism happening, right? You can't say that there isn't racism happening, but I can help along with that too, by saying, listen, this is experience. This is, I can tell you about some kids in our ministry who this is what they thought. This is the feeling they've had about racism that they come in and it's just, they're sit alone or, and they're not welcome to some of the other kids, right? Like just sharing even those, some of those experiences where people are like, wow, I didn't even know that was happening. I'm, we're going to work. We're going to do better. Um, and it's something I think it's, I'm seeing our church kind of unite behind we're doing it. We are going to do this together. We're all in this together. It's just super cool to see. That's great. That's great. Melissa, if you want to come in on that, you can, and then we're going to move into talking more specifically about transracial adoption. Yeah, I think, so I'm a really big fan of organic micro churches. And I think because as I've wrestled with a lot of church issues over the years, and I'm a pastor's kid, so these things have come through, you know, trial by fire, Mm. is that a lot of our conflicts in the arena of church get smaller when we have smaller groups because it's really hard to be a lost voice in a smaller group where there's deeper relationship. And I think the kinds of conversations that Lakia keeps talking about where we have to get uncomfortable, those conversations are going to be the most productive when we already have safe relationship with the people that we're having them with. You know, these aren't the conversations that we can have on Facebook feeds and even from the pulpit, it's hard because it's a one-way conversation. You know, a sermon is a one-way conversation. And so I think it's important for the church to remember that all of the people sitting in their congregation all have the same Holy Spirit and we're all equal in Stat, like we're all sinners and we all have access and this redemptive quality to this amazing Holy Spirit. And so I think sometimes because of the way our modern American churches are set up, there's a power structure that I think can add to some of the oppression that happens in systemic racism and other things. And so I think just going deep with a small group of people in your church community where you can explore these things and where, you know, voices can be heard and that there's not voices that are louder. It's, you know, even for things like special needs and other voices that aren't always heard or the church isn't always meeting them where they are. um, Those things are hard. Um, It's much harder for them to fall through the cracks when you're a group of seven or eight people, you know, if you're an adoptive family struggling and you stop coming and you're this family unit of seven or eight families, you're going to be missed where you might not be missed if you disappear out of a congregation of a hundred or a thousand. Um, and, and that was, you know, a part of our experience with some of these things. So I think we just, you know, we need 
close knit, really deep kind of life on life community. Okay, let's talk about somebody asked a very interesting question about transracial adoption. Do you feel that transracial adoption should continue or that it should come to an end? It's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. Easy question. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say this. So my adoption was a private domestic adoption, transracial adoption. Um, and I'm also, I've been an adoption professional in child welfare for uh, 18 years. Um, and now I'm, I'm a director and I can tell you that um, for me, transracial adoptions, transcultural adoptions aren't going anywhere. I think what, if, if we're feeling anything, it's that there has to be, um, I wrote a piece once about um, in adoption, love is not all you need, right? In adoption, you have to follow your action of love, you know, your steps of love with action. And so um, that includes race too. So I think that families who live in small communities, who don't have a lot of friends that don't look like them, who don't have a lot of friends at church that don't look like them, I think those families really need to to do some evaluating, right? Or what, what can we do differently? I had to do it. I had to do it myself and relocate my whole family to give my son something different. When we moved to Tampa two years ago, it was the first time he had a black teacher in his whole life. And I, I couldn't even imagine that growing up in New York City. I think that's one of the things that was so great for us. But so that's things that adoptive parents can do. But as adoption professionals, we really haven't done a great job of preparing families for the long term. I think, you know, 10 years ago, we really focused on skin and hair, and that's great. <laughs> Focusing on that is great. Having natural hair is great. However, there is so much more to being black than skin and hair. And did we do a good job as adoption professionals to prepare families? So I will tell you that even in the light of everything that's happened now, um, you know, we do the MAP classes at our agency or the PPT classes. And the cultural competency section, I took over the whole thing and, you know, added a lot of new things that we need to really talk about. Um, and that when we're following up with families post-adoption, asking, how are things going with race? How are you guys navigating those transracial adoption issues that come up? I don't think that we have done a good job of that. And, you know, when I adopted our son, I was an adoption social worker. I was teaching MAP. I did teach the cultural competency class but no one could have prepared me for my, my neighbor across the street calling the police because she thought I stole a white baby. So. Wow. Can I just say, wow, because that's what we're all thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there, you know, I, I can tell you a ton of stories, but I think those are the things that we don't prepare families for. So when you know better, you do better. So now when we're interviewing families, we're asking, you know, do mama and papa are they excited about you adopting jameel right are they excited about you doing this and if so what how have they prepared for this um so it's it's i think it's things like that that we need to just kind of be more aware of and be intentional so you know families who are adopting children who say i don't really know what it looks like to parent a black child there's so much information now out there that 
the internet is a huge resource, but there's also families in our own communities that you can speak to. So I think, um, I think for me, you know, it's, it's doing better as an adoptive mother, taking action, but then also as an adoptive adoption professional, kind of, you know, really truly talking about race and getting uncomfortable as well with families. Good, yeah. What do you think, Derek? What do you think about the future of transracial adoption? Well, yeah, and, um, I agree with Lahir where it's actually, I don't think it's going to go away. Uh, and I think it's a, mm-hmm. uh, it's a way deeper, <laughs> complex answer than just, I think, even our sit down here about whether it should happen or whether it, it what the, is it okay, right? But I do, I, I can tell you that um, my own experience, um, and I think the word that keeps being thrown around right now is the idea of like uh, white privilege um, I was just recently just watching this video and uh, video they were talking a lot about that privilege, right? That white privilege. And they talked about how uh, as an, in a transracial family, your child also has that white privilege, uh, but until a certain age, right? Where it's like, yeah, at a young age, I go into a store with my mom and dad. It's like, oh, how cute you guys adopted. Wow, this is great. But, you know, I get older and as soon as I leave my parents, house it's no longer as well man that's dan and kathleen's son it's oh man i gotta cross over to the other side of the street i'm afraid what he might do to me uh and so that white privilege is something that like we as adoptive parents have to realize that i think that when um when they're around us and they're around white people a lot of times it can be seen as like well look like derek is he's he's no issue he's fine but as soon as i leave the nest if you will um, it's something that's like super hard because um, the idea of it is that a lot of kids who uh, even being adopted into a black family, there's certain lessons and certain things that you just know, and you just know to teach your child that uh, when you're in a white family, unfortunately, it doesn't happen. And so once you do leave, you're kind of having, you're essentially behind. You're learning all these different things that. Uh, someone in the black family had the advantage of knowing right and it's the same like their life it doesn't mean that just because they know it's gonna everything's gonna be okay but it does help them to be able to understand even something like you were talking about the idea of uh being afraid about your son driving and those are things like you know the conversation the talk where i think in a white family if you didn't know you, you wouldn't have a conversation with your kid about oh when you get pulled over put your hands on the wheel you get pulled over, narrate everything that's happening, and allow the officer to tell them, hey, this is happening. But in, again, in that white privilege, you just assume that, well, they're with me. Everything's fine. But as soon as they leave, it, everything isn't fine. Um, so you have to understand that that white privilege, uh, actually being in that white family, I think for some, in some areas does them a disservice for a while because once they get older, the world doesn't no longer see them as Dan and Kathleen's son or whatever. Um, and so I think that's something that I was just, I've been thinking about it. even me going on to school in the fall. I'm gonna be in a completely different area of the country and no one's gonna know who I am. I'm not gonna be, I'm no longer associated with my parents. It doesn't matter <laughs> what my parents do, like that doesn't matter. Um, it's, I'm, I have to learn all these different skills and different things that I have to pick up all on my own. Um, and there's probably skills and things that I don't know because I haven't been an, around enough black people to understand things that just happen on a day, daily basis to black people that I'm going to have to kind of learn and 
yeah, it scares me a little bit to think that, yeah, maybe I'm going to have to learn it the hard way. Um, a little bit of the trial and error. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that white privilege is something to really think about that. Yeah, my child has white privilege because they're associated with me, but once they get older and leave, that no longer applies. I've been thinking about that a lot as my yeah. boys are both teenagers now and it feels very different. Yeah, I think yeah. about it a lot. They're 13 and 15, Lahia, so we're right in the same yeah. time. Yeah, we're right in the same thing. Yeah, and my son, my son struggles with that because he's um, white mm -hmm. and he's also black. And so he navigates in both worlds, but he doesn't fit in either. Um, my husband being white, of course, he has white privilege that he's kind of instilled in our son. And I always get scared because I'm like, honey, yeah. no, not that's once he leaves here, they're no. not going to see him that way. And so we're even as an adoption professional, I'm constantly battling as an adoptive mother. Like, what are we where's the balance in all of this? And, you know, no one of none of mm -hmm. us have it down right. Um, there are still things our children will miss out on because we adopted them and we mm -hmm. have to live with that, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. What do you think about the future of transracial adoption? Well, we talk a lot here about family preservation. So I think that's an important part of the conversation. Um, you know, obviously the best place for our kids would be with their families of origin. Um, I'm not opposed to it as a transracial adoptive family. Um, I think like Lahia said, it comes with an immense responsibility. But I also think with that responsibility, the diversity and the open-mindedness that that's created in our family, I wouldn't trade for the world, even for all of the trials. And I think, you know, like you said earlier, Lahia, you know, transracial adoptive families, like, and I talked about earlier, you know, having hard conversations with the safest, closest people, you know, when we all live in one household, we all identify as one family unit. Like, that's the closest type of relationship. And so pulling those relationships, you know, transracial marriages and transracial adoption gives us the opportunity to learn better, to do better, to listen better. Um, but I'll also defer to, there's a set of books that Rhonda Rorta published um, in their voices. And there's a, yes. there's a couple of them, um, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption, just one that's all different races of transracial adoption voices and stories. Um, they're also very research-based. And so statistically from her research, um, transracial adoptees don't fare any worse statistically in terms of um, mental illness, physical illness, um, you know, professions, where they go in the world. Uh, and I think that's important to remember too, that we can overcome these challenges of transracial living, but we have to do it with an incredible amount of intentionality. Mm. Yes. That's so so I think we only have time for one more question, but it's a big one. So get ready. Um, I would like each of you to answer the question, what advice would you give to adoptive parents who are adopting children of another race? I know that can be a small question or it can be a big one. So answer as you like. I think listen um, and ask open-ended questions that don't necessarily lead. I mean, you have to use your intuition. 
Um, but also I always like take the opportunity to tell families it is an immense responsibility you take on as a transracial adoptive parent. But also I think transracial adoptees have an extra peg to hang some of our grief on, you know, it would be different if you looked like me, it would be different if I had been adopted into a family that looks like me. Um, you know, this goes back to this whole identity issue and, and, you know, for us faith, um, kids who struggle with identity issues would have struggled with identity issues, even if they were in homogeneous, you know, non-transracial families that, that, that this is, sometimes is a scapegoat to much deeper things. Um, and we could do everything right as transracial adoptive parents and still have kids who struggle with racial identity. So good. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, I would, you know, we have, we train prospective adoptive families all the time. Um, I would say, you know, research, read. Rhonda's material is great material to read. It, it is research heavy, but it, it definitely sheds a light on some of the things we're doing well and some of the things we absolutely have to work on. So I, I do believe um, families should be intentional. I think oftentimes um, um, in the old modern, old adoption ways, we allowed our children to be the the ones who told us what they needed when they needed it and that it's not fair and it is not um, parenting really. I think, you know, of course, as they get older, you give them space for that. But when they're younger, um, I remember um, uh, an adoptive mom coming to my office and saying, well, I'm having a lot of problems with her. And I said, well, when's the last time she spoke to birth mom, you know, to her, her back then it was birth mom. Now it's, you know, mother of origin, but first mom, when was the last time she spoke to her first mom? And she said, well, she doesn't ask for her, so she's not really thinking about her. So I would challenge any adoptive parent um, to ask those questions, make space for that conversation too, because that's where their identity is too. Um, it's, it's, it's held somewhere else for them sometimes. And I think for my son, that's one of the reasons why we've, we've made space for an open adoption. We make space for him to call and talk to her and ask her really hard questions that she's very rarely prepared for. Um, but that all of us are his parents. And so we have to, you know, be intentional about answering those questions for them. Um, and like I said earlier, love is action. So if you love your child, then, you know, find spaces where your child can see people that look like them. I used to go to take my son to a barbershop in um, not such a pleasant part of town, but it was the barbershop that really resonated with him and where he had relationships. So I took him there every two weeks. I was there on a Saturday morning listening to, and there's such a beautiful, rich culture there that I would have never experienced had I not taken my son to the barbershop. So um, just be intentional. Um, and, you know, to become a transracial adoptive family means things have to change in your own family to make room for that child. And so we have to make room for them, no matter what mm, that looks that's like. That's good. Derek, what advice would you give to parents adopting transracial? So first thing I'd say is stop getting your information from CNN or Fox News. I'm serious, just don't do it. So my, so my parents all the time stop watching the news. You're just, they're painted in a 
they yes. told them, don't do this, don't do this, right? So I tell them, and I, um, <laughs> and I really think it's important to, uh, first of all, listen to Black voices, whether that's books, videos, uh, whatever, right? Follow people, following them on Instagram, listen to Black voices, right? Because the experience that you're, uh, it really does, it doesn't make sense for a white news, newscaster to tell about what's happening to Black people. You need to get it from their own experience of Black people. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say, just do that. Um, also, I'd say, adding on to what Lahia said about allowing yourself to be in communities, putting yourself in situations where you're being surrounded uh, on role models. Uh, the driving story I told you, the reason we learned about what to do when a police officer pulled us over was because one of our friends came over, right? And it's a black, black man who'd been been through that. And so we lined up in a row and said, all right, I'm a police officer. You're getting pulled over. What do you do? And he goes, eh, wrong, right? So putting those different people in your life, people who yeah. my parents wouldn't have known that, right? They, they'd say, yeah, just, <laughs> I think the assumption is just, yeah, just listen to what the officer says. But that's not, there's more to it than just that, right? So putting, I think it's so important to put people, uh, putting people in your life who have been through things. Um, and one of the biggest things to do that is yeah, putting black voices around. Maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe it's finding someone in your church who, who is black and can just take, like, oh, let, let your children hang around them, right? That way, uh, because you're not going to always have all the answers. I mean, in the face that we know that you're not going to have an answer, especially as, a, as white family members. You're not going to mm-hmm. have the answers. You're not going to know. Um, one of the things my parents did at a younger age I'd say younger age. I would say this, and she yells at me and says, okay, you make it sound like you were five and you did this, but she'd let us listen to like rap music and we were, I'll, I'll say 12, right? That's, I'll be nice to her, 12, right? Uh, yeah, she'll feel better <laughs> she'll about feel that. She'll feel better about that. But even that, like <laughs> listening to that kind of music, that understanding, that help, helping understand the culture, that was super important. Things that she said she normally wouldn't let her white children do, right? So it's just different things that you can do to help, help out in that. Um, and then just at the end, I think, understanding that you aren't going to be perfect but also that you are making an effort um i think it's super important for me to be able to see my parents are making an effort knowing okay let's be honest they're going to make mistakes they're going to say some silly things but i have to just understand look they're trying um they want they want to do better they want to do better they want want to do the best they can Uh, and i think my whole family actually just being able to see with even with everything happening seeing how different my family members have become uh, it's been something super impactful for me to see uh, that I think being in a transracial family, I'll say it, it can be challenging, but it also can be very beautiful. If, um, everyone just listens to each other. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. I feel like it's the beginning. Like I feel like and episode you can two. So many of these, yeah. <laughs> but um, so good. Uh-huh. Yes, we could. We could. Yeah, for sure. Well, for can sure. you um, share where people can find you on social media if they want to reach out to you? Yes. Um, so on Instagram, I'm at Lihia Speaks. And I usually share um, a lot about, you know, transracial adoptions, transcultural adoptions, and some of the speaking engagements I have. And then I also have a website where I blog a lot. Um, I'm a big blogger. Um, and it's LihiaCushman.com. Thank you. And if people don't know how to spell your name, it's L-I-G-I-A, Cushman with a C. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And we will put that yes, for the podcast. We will put that in the show notes as well. Derek, if someone wants to reach out to you, how do they reach you? Yeah. Uh, Instagram, uh, dham28. So if you just find me on Instagram. And then, I don't know, just email 
uh, I guess I could, I could give you an email on Instagram if you want to reach out and if you ever want me to speak or anything. Um, I'd, I'd love to do it. I'm new in the speaking world, I, I guess. And so that's what comes with that is I'm free right now. So just trying to get exposure. So. <laughs> and you will be in Pennsylvania soon. So, you know. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And Melissa, you tell people how to find you. Sure. I'm on Instagram at Corkboard Online. And my website is thecorkboardonline.com. And then, of course, the Adoption Connection is the Adoption Connection everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, all the places. So we'd love for you guys to interact with us there and um, continue to ask questions. Let us know if this was helpful. We can always gather a panel, the same panel, different with other folks that we thought about bringing more voices in. And so if this is something that was helpful, you know, let us know and we will continue to do these as we have time and space and as we remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for coming and listening and watching. We are so glad you were here. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I learned some really valuable things in this hour long conversation. So thanks for being here. And we hope to see you again at the Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for joining us on this replay of our race and adoption panel. If you'd like to contact Derek or Lahia, you can find their contact information along with a list of recommended books on all things race at the show notes for this episode. And you can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 96. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.